From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Our last show highlighted the joys of men's tennis prevailing at the end of an NCAA tournament, but softball's disappointing weekend served as a stark reminder that only one team gets to truly finish their season the way they want, and it's incredibly difficult to be that last team standing. And though one bat and ball sport is done, the other is entering its own final proving ground. On today's show, We'll convene FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to discuss the end of the road for softball, baseball's difficult regional draw, the final piece of Mike White's coaching staff, another remarkable triumph for Sam Riffis and the men's tennis program, and the challenging situation involving Naomi Osaka and the sports media in our PAT. Then, with her playing career now coming to a close, we'll chat with softball's Gainesville native Katie Cronister about her journey as a Gator and what comes next. But first, to open our roundtable with Chris and Scott, while softball's regional shutout run was fueled by Elizabeth Hightower in the circle, Florida ended up on the reverse end of two shutouts in Super Regionals thanks to a dominant arm from Athens. Um, Mary Wilson at Avant. Uh, from Georgia. Um, I mean, she was spectacular in her, in, in both games. Now, uh, Florida faced her twice during the regular season and, and split and split a game. She won hit them up in Athens and then they beat her. Uh, I think got it to her, I think for seven hits and an eight, one win um, in what ended up being the, the third game of that series. One of the Florida didn't, first of all, Florida didn't lose the series all year until the super regional, which is obviously bad timing for that. But um, this, she, she, she came to Gainesville and Florida only got seven hits for the entire regional. Three of those were doubles by Kendall Lindemann. All three times she was left at second base. Florida didn't have a runner advanced to third base in the entire super regional. Now uh, uh, the rest of the hits, four singles. Um, Hannah Adams, I think had one hit over the course of the, of, of the series. Um, and in terms of Georgia's offense, against you know Florida's three stables uh, the deep pitching staff they had five home runs and they didn't just have some home runs they had some monster shots uh one of them from uh Justin Fields little sister was a three-run shot in the first game um Florida uh, Florida lost that game four nothing they lost the second game uh six nothing so you know they got some soul searching to do relative to to hitting the ball because they just didn't hit the ball very well and, and, you know, it's, it's Tim Walton I really likes to instill confidence in his players. But, you know, you could tell how frustrated he was uh, in, in, in the postgame situations and maybe a li- even a little bit surprised uh, about how um, ineffective his bats were in that super regional. But the, the first game, they never really got anything going. They had some chances in the second game. But um, Georgia jumped on them uh, early on in the first game, I think, uh, or excuse me, in the, in the, in the decisive game. They I think their first three runners got on base. Florida managed like they do usually to get out of a jam because of some good defensive play. But uh, by the third inning, I think the score was three nothing, four nothing, and it was just going to be hard for Florida to try to try to you know match that offensive output. I think he Tim even said, you know, going into that second game, you know, the way we are right now uh, offensively, uh, if if the other team scores three, four runs, um, it's going to be difficult for us. And that's exactly what happened in that game. And for the first time since uh, 2016, Florida won't be going to the uh, Women's College World Series. Of course, they didn't go last year, but it was a stage last year. Um, but, uh, you know, they'll go into the offseason with a Southeastern Conference regular season championship tucked away. Um, that's, of course, uh, the, the, the fact that they won that – they had to win the four lap final regular season games uh, in conference play to gain a share of the of the title, which is which is something to be said said for that. But I think the program is to the point now that uh, successful seasons are measured by trips to Oklahoma City. They won't be going there, but uh, they'll have another good team next year and they'll have another shot to do it next year. Yeah, first time since 2016. Also ousted at home by Georgia as a big underdog. Uh, Chris, you said last week that the players on this team had nothing to do with that, but it does seem to be that there's a there's some sort of uh, 
I don't know. There's there's some of that that Georgia magic they seem to have to where Florida does not want to see them in Super Regionals. They are now 0-4 against Georgia in Super Regional games and all of those taking place over the course of the last five years. So Yeah, and I, th- and I, and I think the number, if I saw them in the notes, I think it's 1-5 in five all time in NCAA tournament play. So um, Yeah, that's correct. From, that, from henceforth, Gators don't want to play the Bulldogs anymore. Yeah, I want to say, if I remember correctly, Florida played Georgia in the 2010 World Series, I believe, and okay. uh, were eliminated by Georgia, if I remember correctly. And then I think they beat them in 17 or 18, or not 18, 17, in the first game, I think. Yeah, the only win was against Georgia in Oklahoma City in the first round of 2017. So, That's right. That's yeah, right. overall, Lou Harris Champers seems to have uh, have the Gators number when it comes to that. So one bat and ball sport has come to an end. There is one still remaining. That is baseball. And, you know, Scott, as we look at where they are going into regionals, they're hosting, but a 15 seeds about as low as, as they've been in, in a long time. Um, they've got Miami coming to town. It's not going to be easy to even get to super regionals. And now really a, a time of reckoning has come for a team that had massive preseason expectations. Uh, and now, this is this is proving time. Can they get to what everyone thought they were going to be, or is it ultimately a different outcome? Yeah, Adam, we're all going to find that out together because this is uh, this is when it counts the most. I mean, the Gators did uh, get a national seed. You're right. Fifteen is uh, probably as low as they've been under Kevin O'Sullivan, uh, and it's a it's a team that's kind of been, I guess, compared to the team that started number one unanimously in the polls from day one. And whether that's fair or not, I mean, it was all predicated on what they did in 2020 before the, uh, the pandemic shut down college athletics. And then, you know, they come back, okay, Florida, they were number one. We're going to put them at number one again. And it's a talented team, but they, they have not played like the number one team consistently this year. They've had good stretches. Uh, and I thought they had a good run at the SEC tournament, go up there and they win their first three games at them, which they had not done uh, in 21 years. So uh, obviously lose to Tennessee in the semifinals and uh, come home and then find out you know, they're going to host the regional. And, yeah, Miami, USF, and South Alabama coming to town. Of course, right away, uh, Miami is the headliner of, of those teams coming in because you look back at this season – and I think a lot of people still remember the season opening weekend at Florida Ballpark, the uh, the first games ever played there. You had a three-game series against Miami, and the Hurricanes came in and took two or three. And, uh, you know, that raised eyebrows with the Florida fan base. Uh, the way things have turned out, Florida, you know, they, they certainly, I don't as we talked earlier, I don't think they ever went on a stretch where you thought this is clearly a, a, the number one team in the country. But Miami also – Winning two out of three here didn't prove their season either. They they went on to some struggles themselves. Uh, so, uh, you know, I just see it as a big opportunity for the Gators. Um, you know, you get into the uh, super regional round, uh, you're you're right there knocking at the door of Omaha. So uh, they have a, a good chance against the field that, you know, they're going to be favored against. Uh, it's, it all comes down to can they really keep playing the way they have for about the last six weeks? They're winning most series uh, other than the Arkansas closed the regular season when they got swept out there against the number one team in the country. Uh, obviously, you saw them bounce back at the SC tournament last week. And now, you know, can they kind of build some of that, uh, build off of that momentum they developed in Hoover? Uh, it's going to go, it's really going to be about the pitching. I mean, can Tommy Mace, Jack Leftwich, uh, Hunter Barco, Christian Scott, Franco Alamon, those are like their top five arms. Can those guys do it consistently and long enough through the, through the postseason for this team to make a run? Um, and that, that's why Kevin O'Sullivan, I'm sure, is uh, wanting to know too. This is a tough question to answer, but for people that are now going to be checking back in and, and focusing on baseball because the postseason has started, do you think, do they have the ability to be what they were expected to be? If all the pieces come together, could they look like the number one team in the country? Or is that too far from what they've been for most of the season that they sort of, they, they are what they are at this point, which is, you know, a pretty low national seed? You know, Adam, I, I look at this team as being a really talented team. I can see this team getting hot and doing some special things in the postseason. I really can. 
It's just they have to do it on the field. And I mean, you you know, we talk a lot about baseball being different than other sports sometimes. It really is in the postseason. I mean, you can look at the history of baseball and see so many great teams who peaked at the wrong time and they go into the postseason. I mean, the Seattle Mariners won 116 games in 2001. They didn't even make the World Series. The St. Louis Cardinals won 83 games in 2006, the worst team ever to win the World Series. So you see it, you just see it in baseball a lot more than any other sport where the 105 or 16 uh, win team doesn't necessarily win the World Series. Like the Nationals in, what, 2019, they won 93, whereas uh, I think you had two or three teams win more than that that year so just about getting hot at the right time and maximizing what you have and again I think Florida has the kind of roster that can do some special things it's just they have to they have to have it all come together uh at the same time and that's really what a postseason runs all about really what we've been waiting to see if this team could do all year and as you said it's it's uh it's time to show it it's it's there it's not and we'll we'll all find out together at least starting this weekend in the the Gainesville regional uh I want to talk about a a dormant sport at the moment one that has uh, had some news come out in the last week or so and that is men's basketball and Chris you know we talked about how long of a gap there was between the uh the announcements that we saw both Darius Nichols and Jordan Mincy leave and then their replacements. We saw one of them installed last week, and then shortly thereafter, a few days later, the staff has been rounded out. But it, it's sort of, that's how it goes. You know, the, the offseason, it's like the transfer portal opened, and there was just a flood of news for a, a week or so, and then it stopped. And then the coaching carousel, you know, that ramps up, and now that's completed itself as well. That's right. And the, uh, the third position and the second vacancy of the uh, offseason in terms of Florida men's uh, basketball coaching staff has gone to, Akeem Miskton. I know I'm going to have trouble. It doesn't just roll off your tongue, but it's <laughs> M-I-S-K-D-E-N, Miskton. And uh, he comes by way of, of Florida Atlantic. Um, he was a person who was uh, recommended very highly by, obviously, uh, former Florida assistant coach Dusty May, who's down in Florida Atlantic. But also he's someone who had struck a, struck up a, a relationship with Darius Nichols, uh, the the last uh, assistant coach who left, he bolted for uh, to become head coach at at Radford. A young kind of energetic person relates well to players. He's going to get on the court, move around, and do stuff. Actually, I went out there up on the um, on the mezzanine uh, earlier this week for his to kind of watch his first workout uh, with uh, the handful of players that are that are still here. A handful of cup. There was a couple guards, uh, Tyree Appleby and Niles Laner here. Couldn't hear exactly what he was telling him to do because the rap music was uh, was playing so loud during the during the workouts. But uh, that was your you you brought the music. That's right. right. That's yeah, of course I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, come next week, I think some of the uh, transfers are going to become um, trickling in to uh, start doing their um, their medical clearances and what have you. Um, so it's going to be a little more uh, active in terms of getting closer to an off season. Remember. There, there was no offseason last year. Um, and the fact that it's going to be June and they're going to actually have players on the court, uh, something that's that's a good sign. Anybody who re- like really was a, a COVID-impacted poster child uh, in this basketball team, it was Jason Jatobo. Because uh, two years ago during the season, he came here, I want to say he weighed 340 pounds, and he got wow. down to 290 um, and Preston Green was relentless with him, and he was he was bought in to the whole thing, and it started to show late in that season. Then, of course, COVID hits late in that season, and Jason Jatobo is a six eleven, again two hundred ninety pound guy who's just been you know, with with the coaches and the strength condition, uh, the conditioning team, and the and the training team looking after him had just lost however much weight he had lost, say 40, 50 pounds. Well, he had to go home, and he doesn't have anybody to monitor him at home. A guy like that needs people around him to, to, um, to encourage him. And to, he's the guy that – he's one of the three guys that's here now training. Um, he'll have an off season. So uh, uh, as these players uh, that are sticking around, the others will be back for summer B. Um, it, it's, 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 just kind of, it's just kind of nice to see it. It's really one of the first signs – that uh, the athletic uh, season 
is proceeding to normalcy. And I say athletic season as in next athletic season, the 21-22 one. Um, we're all, we all know that they've announced that full capacity. And so that means, uh, you know, teams are going to be rolling on time. Training camp's going to be a time, you know, we're, hopefully we're going to have press conferences with real live people sitting in front of us and not on Zoom. And those are the things we're anticipating. Uh, but this is all the start of it. And uh, Al Pinkins is out there working to Jason Jatobo. And on the far sideline, you got Akeem Miskin working with Niles Lane and, <clears throat> excuse me, Tyree Appleby. And uh, that's just a good sign that things are starting to progress and uh, we're getting close to being whole again. Certainly the basketball team is whole now with a full complement of its assistant coaches. You know, a sport we have not talked about historically that much on the show has been very, very relevant now for weeks on end. And that is, of course, men's tennis, where uh, less people forget that after the team championship, there are then individual championships and the singles tournament. Uh, and Sam Riffis, who was a huge part of getting Florida a team title, went on and just rolled right through, won a national title and knocked off some really uh, some, you know, much higher seeds in the process. Um, guys, I guess, let's talk about Sam Riffis and on the, you know, on the whole, what an incredible few weeks it's been for the men's tennis program. Yeah, I mean, Brian Shelton, obviously, uh, you know, we, we talked about how he's built a really good program and had been building toward this point. And, you know, they did it with the, the team title. And then, you know, for those guys who are playing singles, they have to turn around the next day and start the singles tournament. And for uh, Sam Riffis, that meant basically going to bed. He said, I think about 2.30 on the Saturday night wow. uh, after the Todd t title, playing the next day about noon and, and then having to do it, uh, what, Sunday, six. Monday, Tuesday? Yeah, six, six days in a row. Mm. Uh, did it six days in a row, and he and he – uh, won the title against Daniel Rodriguez of South Carolina as the uh, number six overall seed was Rafis. He beat the number one overall seed, beat the number two, and I think number four on the way to the title. Just playing some spectacular tennis, but even more, I think, gut check. I mean, that he showed some real uh, perseverance, just a gutsy performance, and he joined what Mark Merklin and Jeff Morrison as the only Florida players, men's players, to ever win the NCAA singles title. And it had been uh, since Morrison in 99, so it had been 22 years. So, you know, just a, uh, an amazing run. You know, talking to him, uh, the story made it a little better. His, he lives basically right there at the complex, his family. His mom works at the USTA, which is uh, now the host of the national tournament. And so he said basically – uh, as he was walking out after being the crown national champion, he had about a minute and a half drive to his house. So uh, pretty cool story in that way. And just a good guy who's, I think, going to do some stuff on the, the pro circuit one day. Uh, but you got to tip your cap or tip your visor, whatever they do in tennis, to Brian Shelton and his crew. The, the notion of, that to win, a to be part of a team tennis championship and then to win singles – I mean, there's reason it doesn't happen very often. Um, and like Scott made the point, you know, he had to do it six times. So remember, and, and again, just to put numbers to, to day, he, he had to win six singles matches or play six singles matches before that for the team. And, that, and now roll in six doubles matches too. Right. So, yeah. so wow. you're talking, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you're taught, you're, you know, you're taught, you're talking about 18 tennis mat competitive tennis matches in a 12-day period. That's um, wild. That is wild, absolutely. And it's one of the reasons, like I said, it doesn't happen very often. It's one of the reasons when we do our uh, annual look back at uh, the top 10 uh, team moments and individual moments, Sam Riffis is going to be very, very high. Uh, all that going on in Lake Nona. To, and that's good that he, that he only lived that far away because he didn't get to go to whatever, uh, down to Church Street to uh, celebrate the team championship. Uh he had to go home, get get to bed, and go win a championship on his own. So I hope eventually he got to celebrate both those titles in appropriate fashion. But uh, uh, first one to do that in, in Florida history, and that's an, an, an amazing achievement. Think about this. They've been playing tennis here a long time. Was it 1944 or something like that, Scott? Hmm. Uh, consecutively since 47, since 1940, the program started. That's right. Since 1940, the program has started, and uh, uh, the, men, the, the men's program wins its first team title, and 
he becomes the third ever and he gets to have a hand, a serious hand, because he was number two singles player, I believe, uh, during that whole team run. Um, just a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, achievement by that guy. Yeah, no question. And some very deserved attention going to, to Brian Shelton and his team as well for everything that they've accomplished. Uh, for our PAT, I want to stay in the world of tennis. And, you know, we often on our PATs, we do goofy things. We venture pretty far out there into pop culture. Um, today, I actually want to have a, kind of a serious PAT, and it's about the Naomi Osaka situation uh, and if you haven't followed this, the quick summary is she announced before, this is the number one women's tennis player in the world, she announced before the French Open that she was not going to do press conferences or fulfill her media obligations because being asked questions about her performance was negatively affecting her mental health. So she said that right from the outset, played her first match, won, skipped the press conference, was fined $15,000, and was told that if she continued to do this, the fines would escalate even up into uh, potentially expelling her from the tournament, defaulting, as they say. Um, and then before she played her second match, she dropped out and said, you know what, I have understand I've become a distraction. I need some time to work on myself here and figure out how we can better work with media so everybody gets what they need. But for now, I'm just going to I need to just take a step back. Um, so I, I wanted to, to put this to you guys as two long serving members of the sports media. And it's sort of, I don't know that I have an exact question, so I just want to put it out there and, and get you guys talking about this. But the, the starting point that I would go to is what obligation do sports writers, reporters have to consider the mental state of the athletes when posing questions, if, if at all, if at all? I guess we could kick that around. I mean, I, I, I've often said um, I've seen it executed both ways, whether, I mean, and, and this is someone and, and Scott can speak to it. Scott's been in a lot of locker rooms, professional locker rooms. Um, also, uh, in, in just about every sport when, when something bad happens to an athlete on the field, uh, whether it's a, a, a fumble throws an interception, gives up a home run or anything like that. Um, I've always been one to think that, that, that person should be out there and, and, and to talk about it. Okay. When they, when they come out and they answer questions, uh, and, and again, I don't think they should get, get answer a bunch of stupid questions and stuff, but when they, when they come out and they can give uh, a couple, even if it's just a couple minutes, answers to some difficult questions about a very difficult time in their life, they, get, they score points with the media. And, okay, I'm not saying you got to score points with the media, but I think ultimately the, the press can be softer. Or, or, or at least be more. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, uh, maybe mindful. more, more, more yeah, mindful or even even sympathetic. To, unless you're talking about some of these, you know, the the yelling, talking heads on the on TV or something like that. But most of you talking, especially talking about beat writers and columnists, you know, will will appreciate somebody who can come out and answer those questions. But I, I've been thinking about this the last couple of days since this has come to the forefront and. You know, it's just not something that we've talked about before. If she really has a problem, and obviously she does, then you know that does have to be taken into consideration. We don't want to, we don't want. I mean, she is. Well, how many majors has she won for? And 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 she's and she's still dealing dealing with some of these things. And nobody wants to put somebody through something that's that's tormenting them in a personal nature. I uh, in two thousand nine, I was in Tampa. And the Orlando, I was working for the Orlando Sentinel. They sent me over to, uh, to a race series to do a story on Zach Greinke, okay, who suffers from social anxiety disorder. So I did some research about it. I talked to a couple doctors about it to get a little bit more about it. But Zach Greinke wasn't going to do any. He finally agreed he would do one with his home, hometown paper. And just to sum up, social anxiety disorder is, is basically a fear that people are watching you. Um, and judging you. So imagine what Zach Grinky is going through when he's standing on the mound. Do you think anyone's watching him or judging him? Yeah. So that's quite a battle that he's had to deal with. And I got him to talk about that. And I think I probably asked one too many questions. And I said something, what what's troubles you the most when, when you have to deal with something? like He goes, when I have to sit here and answer questions about it. 
uh, okay. Well, maybe well, let's uh, let's talk about a no hitter you threw or your Cy Young award or something like that. But I mean, he put it he with with one simple sentence he he was able to put it in perspective. But yes, I think we're especially we're at a point now where. We just know more about people now in, in the social media setting. And I think we do have to be, and you, it was a good word to use, Adam, mindful. Mindful of that. But at the same time, let's let's understand that that she's in the position she's in. She's making all this money and getting all this fame because of herself as a tennis player, but because there's people out there willing to pay a lot of money to televise it and right. to cover it. Okay. So I yes, I do think there is some responsibility from the other end. Maybe she can meet us halfway on this. How how that's going to be, I don't know. I don't want us to all of a sudden be relying on on Zoom or pool interviews and stuff like this for the rest of eternity. Um, I think there probably is a middle road somewhere, and uh, this puts to the forefront a reason to maybe have the conversation about it. Yeah, there's a lot really to unpack to this whole uh, topic, really, guys. Uh, I'm like, Chris, I've given it a little bit of thought the last couple of days since it's bubbled to the surface. And I'll go back to Adam's original question about or should, a, you know, should the media be mindful of a, an athlete's mental health? And, uh, you know, it's not something that's certainly prominent discussion in the media world. I mean, you imagine that most of these people who are able to do what these athletes can do in the public on national television with loud crowds and people yelling for and against him. Let's face it. Most of them to ever have reached that point, have a lot of mental toughness. I mean, that's how they got there. I think when you look at Osaka's, this particular case, she, she got some really bad advice or she wasn't, I guess, honest or upfront with her advisors because with the way this has played out, she should have never even been at the fridge open if she's having these right. these real these real issues in the moment as as apparently she is and you feel you feel for her because I mean she's a young person and I mean to go out and do what she does on tennis to me that's got to be a lot harder than answering a few questions uh, about your performance win or lose and I'm like Chris I've always taken it as and I, I dealt with a couple of guys who actually had some real issues with the double raise. And you, I mean, you just try to be human with them when, when there's difficult, I guess, uh, exchanges between a reporter and an athlete or a coach who, you know, has gone through something that's, that's publicly humiliating or uh, disturbing or whatever that's, you know, is difficult for that person. I mean, you certainly, if you do interact with them in a, a reporter player or subject exchange, I mean, you, the media is a, a word that is so misused. I mean, it's everybody's yeah. lumped in the media. There's so many media that I think from the beat reporters position, I think most professional athletes who have dealt with beat reporters, you know, they don't always like them or maybe get along or you see things same. But I've always thought there's been more mutual respect there than there is maybe with other elements of the media, except the celebrity media. Like mm -hmm. now there's so many, coach ex-coaches and players who are media so they're buddies with these guys but you're getting a whole different kind of product i mean it's more like entertainment when they're when they're in that environment so uh but yeah just going back to this case i mean it's certainly something that we're going to be talking about in the future i think there is some middle ground there i don't see the the whole wheel having to be reinvented i just think that this particular case this young woman She's got some issues going on. And it's unfortunate that she was ever there. She, it would have been much better for her if she had let the French open though beforehand, like, hey, I'm dealing with some stuff. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to try to get this right. I do also these, I do believe if you are going to be a professional athlete or even a, a big time, if you're at a big time program like Florida, uh, you're going to be exposed to this kind of attention. I mean, most of those people in this world, they accept that. They're used to it. They can handle it. But it is an interesting once in a while, maybe there's more going on behind the scenes than you know. And you just hope that those people have the right people around them to help them. Yeah, well, this is a topic that uh, a lot of people have been discussing. And I was looking forward to having, uh, you know, to open this up with the two of you. Very good insight. And again, there's uh, things are likely going to change after this. It'll be interesting to see how they change and how it affects 
It affects what you guys do. It affects what I do here. That's, we are all part of this ecosystem called, quote unquote, the media. So uh, it's a changing world. There's no question. But uh, this infrastructure right now is focused on Gator baseball specifically. Regionals are this weekend in Gainesville. Uh, Scott's going to have you totally covered on that at Gator Scott on the Twitter. And, of course, you can follow the action along at FloridaGators.com for all the content and more. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Adam. Oh, you're not going to be talking to me, Adam. I'm not going to talk to the podcast anymore. <laughs> I'm just, you know. <laughs> it's always tough to say goodbye to great athletes when they leave the field. But Katie Cronister isn't going too far. The Gainesville native who grew up with dreams of following the likes of Stacey Nelson and Hannah Rogers ultimately made that a reality. And now it's time to see what's next. We spoke to Katie just before the start of the NCAA tournament to track the story of one of the most dynamic personalities wearing the orange and blue today, beginning with her abnormal path to the diamond. I actually started off as a gymnast um, and my sibling, Jack, who's a year younger than me, played softball before I did. Um, and I just remember when it was about 2008, I was probably 10 or younger, and I went to my first softball game. Um, and watch Stacy Nelson throw. And I think that's when I realized, like, I kind of want to do what she's doing. So uh, that's how I eventually picked up the ball and I fell in love. So I've definitely been a spectator for uh, Florida softball my whole life. Um, I've been there in the good moments and through the bad moments. And I just really wanted to be able to play and so close to home, uh, especially with a team that's so, it was so dominant. They were dominant when I, when I was younger. Um, they still are. So um, I always just kind of had my sights set on Florida, and luckily the dream became true for me. So if, if your entry point was Stacey Nelson, does that mean the second you picked up a softball, you immediately went to the circle, or did you do some other things before you became a pitcher? I immediately went to the circle, uh, but when I realized I wasn't so good at first, I kind of kept it on the down low. So um, when I started joining travel ball teams and whatnot, um, they're trying to figure out where they're going to put me. Um, I was faster when I was younger, so they looked at outfield. And my dad would always tell their coaches, like, hey, she she's a pitcher. And the coaches would be like, why didn't you say you were a pitcher? And I would always <laughs> be like, I'm not good. Like, I'm not good. <laughs> so um, I was always pretty blunt and I knew I had some work to do. So it took me a couple of years to really hone in on pitching and realizing that's really what I wanted to do. I always knew I wanted to do it. I just <laughs> I wanted to tell people when I was good that I was a pitcher and not so much when I was still developing. Right. So how, how did you develop? You know, how did you go from and I get maybe you might be being you know modest and saying you were very good, but you're now pitching for the Gators. So obviously something happened during that time. Yeah. Um, I, when I was about 10, so right when I was still learning how to throw, I think I picked up a pitching coach out of Devin Finley, who actually played, um, college softball at UNF at the time. So she was still in college. So I was working with her dad. Um, when she graduated, um, her dad passed her over to me and I, I've pitched with her until I came to college. So it's, it was a nine year journey with her. Wow. Um, she really worked to really worked hard to develop with me. And, uh, I, I'm not being modest. I was terrible for the first couple <laughs> of years. It was, I threw, I naturally had some speed, but I was not able to control it. So, um, I first had to control my anger and my impatience I had with pitching. Um, and then once I was able to realize that I'm not going to pick it up as easily, then it, it was just all about the work then. So my dad still to this day will catch bullpens with me and he's learned throughout the way, um, when we worked with Devin. So if I didn't have Devin, I was always at, in at my backyard or at the field with my dad. So I guess recruiting for you probably wasn't that complicated because you always knew you wanted to go to Florida, but were there other people that were looking at you? Did you have some other things you were considering or was it always just I'm going I'm going straight down the road um I wanted to stay in the SEC so um if it wasn't Florida I was going to venture out um luckily I kind of committed younger during the whole process so I didn't really uh, venture out too too much I had a couple of smaller schools that were looking at me at the time um but by the time I was about a freshman in um high school I specifically remember Florida was actually out recruiting Kaylin McGill from PK Young and she was the junior or senior at the time that I was a freshman. 
And I actually ended up pitching that game against them. And I tell coach Vaughn that all the time. I was like, you were out there my freshman year. And he's like, yeah, I don't remember that at all because he was there for Kalen. Um, So they were able to come to high school games a lot due due to the close proximity that uh, Gainesville high is with UF. Um, And then I just went to a couple of pitching camps here or there um, when Jen Rocha was the pitching coach. And I just, I kind of had an easy recruiting wise um, just in terms of being able to be working in, in my backyard. Now, after seeing the team in 2008, did you instantly become a super fan? Were you at games all the time? Or was it like, okay, I want to do this, but I got to go step aside and figure out how first, and I'll come back a little bit later. Um, yeah, I watched here and there a little bit after Stacy. We watched Stacy all the time. Um, and I remember coming here and there when Hannah was a pitcher here and Lauren Hager. Mm-hmm. So I was always in and out of the ball field. But if I had a tournament or if I wanted to work on um, what my team was up to, of course, I would always – um, work on how I was going to get there first, but I definitely still loved coming to the games, whether or not, um, it was just a matter of if I had time to go. Yeah. I I think about people who stay in their, their hometown to go to school. And I feel like there's, it's a smaller number because there's pressure that comes with it, especially athletics wise, the people who've watched you all along, they think, okay, well, they have to go dominate here. And you're going to have all these people that already know you, that are watching you. How did you view that? Was that something that you thought about a lot or was it really, did it not enter your, your thinking? Um, I thought about it a little bit. I was definitely smaller when I was committing. Um, I gained quite, I gained my weight in college. So I was extremely small. So I do remember, um, sometimes boosters would come to our game, to my high school games. And I remember a lot of people were just like, have you seen like Florida? Like they're big girls. (laughs) Like, are you sure? Like you're good. This is going to be you. So I had more doubt than anything just from being the hometown kid. But I didn't really let it get to me. I, I mean, I knew I was small. I'm in my own body. Once you actually got on campus and you know you got into the program, who who was most instrumental in helping you sort of learn the ropes? Obviously, your coaches play a big role. But as far as teammates, who was really there for you? For the first couple of weeks, I was extremely intimidated by everybody, not because of um, what they were saying or anything, but because... I've always wanted to go there. There, Here's the hometown kid. And I just was given the keys to the home and was starstruck. So um, I hung out with the freshman a lot. And I think the one who really took me under her wing was uh, Delaney Gorley. So she was the senior. Um, She actually asked to be my road roommate, which shocked me because I did not see that coming. Um, So I learned a lot through her and um, the friendships that she had with the older girls. It was kind of like a connection um, that I had with them as well. But uh, Delaney was just extremely positive and understands what freshmen go through, especially um, because I was behind such a dominant staff. I wasn't expecting a lot of playing time, but at the same time, you still like all, everybody wants the ball. So she understood and had those talks with me um, to realize that, you know, sometimes you it's a waiting game playing at a school this big and you just have to learn to enjoy the moment and enjoy your teammates. And before you know it, you will have the ball and you'll, you'll be fine. So um, I really enjoyed her and uh, we still stay in touch. So that's cool. Was there a lefty connection as well? Is that like a kind of, yeah, there was a little bit of a lefty uh, connection. She called me her little lefty. So um, (laughs) there was, so that was cool. Delaney, I think was like one of the first or second lefties to ever come to Florida. If I remembered. So I knew there wasn't a whole lot of lefties that came, but uh, there there was that. And there was also when I came in, I had a little bit of the change up. um, And so we would call it triple dipping because Delaney would strike out batters after batters going three consecutive changeups in a row so we would we would have that connection in bullpens so that was cool from the the dream of of thinking about being out on that field watching Stacey Nelson to when you first got in the circle wearing the orange and blue what do you remember about that and, and what it meant to you to reach that point it meant a lot I remember I first got the ball uh at a USF tournament and Um, I was straight back to being starstruck. And I remember like when coach Juan's like, here, here you go. Like you're going to pitch a couple innings. I just remember like running around looking for my stuff and coach Juan immediately was like, slow down. Like you got this, you're going to be good. You're going to have jitters work through the jitters and you'll be on cruise control after that. So I definitely remember my legs trembling when I got out to the rubber to throw a couple pitches. But like you said, I mean, that's what I came here to do. So I settled in fine, but it was, it was absolutely crazy to even think about. I still remember it like it was yesterday and my parents probably cried. They were there. So (laughs) it was a cool experience. 
So last year was going to be a big year for you, like more playing time, and then and then COVID hits. Uh, what do you remember about how you responded to it? How did you stay engaged? How did you stay in the right mindset, the right physical shape when there are so many challenges that obviously no one expected or saw coming? Yeah, um, honestly, it was a blessing in disguise for me. Once I found out that um, we were going to be granted our fifth year, I knew I had time to kind of heal up a little bit. I was a little, I've been a little banged up um, just throughout my career. So for the first couple of months, it was actually a time for me to rest and do some rehab to get some strength back up in order to um, stay in my role or potentially increase my role uh, when we came back for the 2021 season. So um, I needed that time to just relax and work on my mental state while I kind of stayed away from pitching for a little bit. And then once I got back in my groove uh, closer to when the fall was going, um, I knew I would be more ready than I was uh, before COVID hit. I've gotten so many good recommendations from people. The answer to this question, which is what entertained you during that time? Were you like, were you binging Netflix? Were there certain things that you, did you have a new hobby? Like, what was it that got you through that mentally? Honestly, I was coloring a lot. I don't know. You know, like those mandalas that are like supposed to be soothing and there's like this pattern. Like the adult coloring books? Yeah, the adult coloring books. So I had yeah. those. The weird part about it is I would use like gel pens. So like not markers <laughs> where you can get it done in 20 minutes. I would take days. And wow. I think it was just time for me to just relax my mind and um, just I don't know. It was so boring. So, um, I'm not a crazy binge watcher, but I do remember coloring and I tried to color like a page a day and that slowed down. Cause after about a week, you're like, all right, I can't do this either. Like I need to go outside right. and do something. So Mandala, what is it called? Mandala coloring? I think it's a mandala. That's like the, uh. there's like a ton of different designs of a mandala, but I, I think that's what it is. And it looks cool once it's all done. It's just, yeah. It's very pattern-based and uh, routine-based, so I guess that's why I like it. I just like that there's something so you don't have to call it an adult coloring book. It sounds so much more legit the way that you said it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, it's, 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 you know, it's a scientific discipline. It's mandala coloring. Um, it's good to know. So you mentioned you know, knowing you are going to have the option for that extra year. How quickly did you make that decision? What went into it? Because not everybody made the same decision you did. So what, what was the process like for you? Yeah, I made the, the decision uh, before they were even uh, offering the fifth year. If, if the chance was going to be t uh, given, I knew I was going to take it for a couple of reasons. One, I'm still home, so it's not like I miss my parents or want to start a journey mm -hmm. away from, I don't know. I just miss my parents. Two, um, I am in my grad school program, so I was going. I knew I had school for at least another year, so why not get that covered and still play ball? So by the time that I would be done with ball, if I took my fifth year, I would be a double grad. So that um, took it. I took that into account, um, and I just wanted to have another year with the girls. I our connection was really really special um, when we came or before COVID, and still when we came back. So I just wasn't quite ready to leave that atmosphere so you know it's interesting at the, looking at the the gator teams of the past in most cases there was a a one dominance right you mentioned a few of them stace nelson han rogers lauren hager um and then this is maybe one of, one of the more different teams that coach walton's had and it, it's a true staff with a group of pitchers that complement each other and you know could have four of you in one game so what has it been like to be part of this group where you know that each individual is really an, an integral part of, of the team's success? I think it's so special. Um, we all support each other very well. And we all know that we are very dynamic and um, can complement each other really well. So I think that provides an extra level of confidence when um, whoever has to go in to save whoever um, or whoever starts, um, there's always a reason behind it. And I think that um, none of us can be counted out, especially scouting wise for other teams. Like I feel bad mm -hmm. for them having to watch every pitcher because maybe at a certain point one of us is going in and they got to be ready so um i think it's really cool and i think that's what makes this team really special this year is because it it takes a force of us and it's not going to take just one of us so being able to have everybody um bought in and ready for their role uh was extremely special and it it, it really has paid off this year hmm. you're looking at your your entire career what moments stand out the most when you think about five years, everything that you've had a chance to be a part of, 
on the, you know, the, the biggest stages. Um, what stands out when you kind of mine those memories? I think I can have one for almost every year. Um, they're all different. Um, a lot of them have to do with walk-offs. So, um, <laughs> not necessarily my freshman year, my freshman year, we made it to the national championship series and that 17 inning game was absolutely insane. Um, yeah. I don't think I'll ever lose that memory or that experience. Um, I think that's what makes me, this team special this year is there's a lot of younger kids on this team who haven't been to the world series and people like me and Jamie have been every single year. So we kind of know what it takes. Um, I think the, how we won this past series this year is something I'm always going to remember just because that feeling felt like that's, that's the feeling that um, teams have the special teams have um, whenever they make it to a world series or whenever they make it to a super regional um, Jordan Matthews walk off um, against Texas A&M a couple of years back for us to go to Oklahoma city. That's an easy one to remember just because of how young she was. And mm -hmm. um, I don't, a lot, of, I think a lot of people already counted us out um, before she even had that at bat. So every, every year has been special in its own unique ways. And I think it's because people are just clutch. The Gators are clutch and they have been every year. And um, it takes different people to step up in the moment. And somehow it's always the right person in the right moment. Are there any memories that stand out off the field? Like, I don't know, a, a particular story of being on the road, something really crazy that happened. Um, does anything come to mind when you, when you think about that? Um, yeah, I think uh, two years ago, one that really stands out is uh, we were in Missouri uh, for 10 days and it felt like seven weeks for us. That's a um, long time in Missouri. <laughs> it was a long, long time. And we were yeah. just in like the middle of nowhere. Um, I just remember our hotel, we'd enter off on an exit boom there's our hotel and you see nothing else so yeah we kind of figure out we had to figure out how to keep us entertained the hotel staff was extremely nice and we used i remember um them taking their little hotel vans and taking us to starbucks or wherever we wanted to go just to make us feel more comfortable um knowing that you know there are other people and we can go places besides just the middle of nowhere um I, that was kind of a unique memory that i think we'll always remember um especially because we ended up winning the tournament that year so mm -hmm. i mean it pays off but um it was just a long long time there <laughs> in terms of your future how much have you thought about what's next for you because so much of it right you've had it in your head i'm gonna go to florida i'm gonna play softball what now that you've gotten to the end of that part of the story where where do you go next yeah i i don't have it all mapped out to be completely honest with you i do know that um i do i give lessons currently and i have throughout my entire college career so i'm going to stay at a facility continue to give lessons uh to a bunch of my kids um and you know that that would hold me off financially in terms of me trying to figure out what i'm going to do next i do know i'm interested in law so i am considering studying for the lsat and potentially looking into law school so I don't think I'm quite done with school yet. So I think that's kind of <laughs> what has me on a, a just a holding pattern right now. Um, but I'm, I am planning on taking a year off after this to kind of slow things down and figure out what I really want instead of rushing into something that I may not necessarily want to do for the rest of my life. Hmm. Uh, most people know that you are part of a, a Gator power couple, you and Grant Holloway, uh, who is one of probably the most interesting people we've ever had. I think he's been on this podcast three times. He always brings it every time he comes on. Uh, I'm just curious, what's it like having someone like that that is also a high-level athlete that, you know, knows what you're going through and, and the support you can give each other, understanding the, the pressures that come with being a, a high-level D1 athlete? Yeah, I think the biggest point that you've kind of hit on it is that he understands because he's been he, – he knows what it's like uh, day in and day out of being an athlete. He knows – you know, kind of what to say if I don't necessarily have a good game and he knows how to be my hype man. Um, we just understand each other. And I think we are competitive um, just doing anything with each other. And he's a goofball. So he definitely picks me up. We're a little bit of opposites. I don't know if you would, I don't know if you would know, but a lot of people would look at me and understand that I'm pretty shy and reserved and, uh, those two He's words not. don't really correlate. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> no, so uh, no. we are definitely opposite. Um, but we also have such a deep level of understanding just in terms of our daily lives. And I think that's what's important. He needs structure. I have structure and I need somebody to make me laugh when I'm not expecting it. And Grant does so. How do you guys compete? Are there like certain like games that are your go-to or you're going to compete and feel like you guys are on, on the same level where anybody can win? Not really. We kind of, he's not good at softball or any type of 
throwing activity. Um, he's kind of picked up golf right now. So he thinks he's a stud at golf. So we'll play each other <laughs> in putt putt. Um, just recently I beat him in putt putt and he's not that Very happy nice. about it. So we do things like that. Um, we don't really have anything <laughs> we both like or enjoy. Uh, we're still trying to find that out, but it, it could be something as small as he thinks he can do something in a minute. And I tell him, no, I, I can do it in a shorter time, whether it's cooking breakfast or whatever it may be. Yeah, you never know where competition. Coach Walton said during quarantine, he and his wife, Sam, played sequence every night. It was like an ongoing saga of sequence. So you can always, you can create a competition out of anything. That's a suggestion, right? A suggestion, future idea. That, that brings it up. We do play uh, some heavy poker. Uh, okay. And at first, <laughs> he didn't, he didn't want to learn poker. I don't know why. And I've always played poker. So once he finally learned, now all of a sudden, like I said, he thinks he's grandmaster at poker. So um, that's probably our big competition too. Yeah, he does not lack for confidence that much. I, I, I've learned from talking to him a few times. Um so hopefully in a couple months, he will be headed to the Olympics. Uh, do you have plans to go to Tokyo as well? Is that in the cards? It was until I don't know if COVID's going to let it actually happen. Um, mm. I know they were talking about whether or not they want spectators um, to stay back um, or just not travel from a uh, different country. So it, at res right now, it doesn't look like it's good for me, um, mm. but we'll figure out some, a way to watch him or a way to be there for him. So I'm not too, too worried about it. Okay. We really appreciate the time. Thank you for sharing your story. We, uh, we enjoyed it and we look forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at FloridaGators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.